We are in Hebrews chapter 13 today, so if you want to turn there, uh, that's where we're going to kind of park. We're going to have uh, a few different passages uh, that we're going to look at as well. And as always, we use, uh, we, I love to use a physical copy, uh, but also I, I typically have open our version app, uh, which on you, if you go to that version, you find that app on the App Store, find Exchange Church, and then on the homepage, uh, there's a, a button that says Sermon Notes, and all of the passages that we use uh, through the course of the day will be listed there for you. Also, underneath of that on the homepage is a uh, little banner that looks like this. It says, Welcome to Church. And that's where we're having and posting all of our challenges throughout the series on the commitments of uh, being here, a member here at Exchange. And so uh, we told you about some of those like a couple weeks ago, uh, about having people into your home, pursuing community, going arrows out. Uh, it's been really incredible to even hear reports of that already. Uh, and I'm excited to see uh, what the Lord's going to do in that. If you're new to Exchange, we want to welcome you into this series. Over the past five weeks, uh, we've been looking at what the church is and, and the importance of the church and what should we believe about the church and especially how should we behave and act and be a member of the church. And one of the things that we went back to at the very beginning was, what does God say about the church? What does he believe about the church and, and how is he committed to the church? I think it's really important if God has chosen sovereignly this vehicle of the church to accomplish his mission in the world, then we should pay attention to what he says about it, how we should live within it, and the structures that he's placed around it. And so that's the basis of this whole series. If God is committed to this church, then we should be as well. I want to make one distinction, too, as we press forward. Uh, There's a really big distinction in Scripture about those inside the church and those outside the church. This happens all throughout the New Testament, and it happens in a way not to say that anyone's better or anyone's worse, uh, but there is some that have not yet committed their life to Christ, broken and perfect people that are allowed to come and to, to, to observe, to be a part of what we're doing. But Christ in the whole of Scripture makes this distinction for us about those in the church and those that are not of the church. Here's one quick distinction, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 12. Uh, He says this, Paul says this, for what uh, have I to do with judging outsiders? So he's he's making this distinction outside of people who are not professing to know Jesus and a part of the community. What, What Paul's saying is those who have not placed themselves within the community of the church by following Christ, he's like, what do I have to do about judging them? Do you not judge those that were, are within the church? So he makes a distinction here. I think we've all heard it said many times, like we shouldn't judge. But Paul's saying, actually, you should. You should judge only those within the community of the church. The outside, he says, are are actually for judging. That is for the Lord. He says, but those are outside. God judges. And then he says this, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. What Paul's saying here is that when we begin this journey of faith together and we commit to one another and we are responsible for taking the mission of God into the world, we are then held to an entirely different standard than the rest of the world. That's one of the basis of the New Testament. There's, there's a big distinction of those who are not in the church and those who are of the church. So scripture makes this a delineation very clear 
who, uh, between those who claim to know and follow the Lord and those who do not. And so it's within this delineation that he instructs the church on how to behave and act together. My point is this, through this series, and especially now, we're talking about what it means to be a member of the church within community. All of these things come definitely through Scripture and that we would say uh, what it means to be a member of any biblical church. But what Scripture is clear about is that anyone who's a part of the church is someone who is already actively and pursuing Christ. So much of what we say throughout this series is assuming that someone is a believer, they're entering in and wanting to become a part of the community because for the sake of doing the Christian life in the way that God has asked us to, uh, we're com- uh, committing together to pursue Christ. There's so many ways that we do that together. We've taught on that before, the, that we uh, deepen our discipleship, that we, uh, that we seek the Lord through spiritual disciplines. But now we're focusing specifically on the 51 one another's. How do we live together? How do we treat one another Scripture speaks of this often. So for the past two weeks, we've talked through the commitment to pursue community. Arrows out. The second commitment that we're going to be working through, so the way that we're going to do this is there's five commitments uh, to being a member at Exchange. And uh, the second commitment, we have two sermons on each commitment. The second commitment uh, begins today. It levels up a little bit in progression. I think the protection of the church, life together, we've shared them all a a few weeks ago. You've seen them before, um, so maybe you're intrigued now. There's nothing new. Here it is. And so the second commitment is this. I commit to submitting to the care, correction, and protection of the leadership at exchange. So every time that I, that I do a wedding, part of my premarital counseling uh, that comes before is talking to a husband and wife, future husband and wife, about what it means to be a husband and wife. What does the Bible say about marriage? And what does the Bible say about roles? And what does the Bible say about the distinctions in that? And I think uh, early on, as I began to do this 20-some years ago, Every time I would get to this, there's a a famous passage in Ephesians chapter 5, which tells husbands how to treat their wives and wives how to treat their husbands. Uh, There's this this passage that uses this word submit, specifically talking to the wives. And every time I did that early on in my ministry, it was almost as if I would speed through that. I would put that one at like times four, you know? Because I just, maybe I was just immature. Maybe I just didn't really want the battle. I didn't want the headache of that conversation. It's weird a little bit. And I think I was just insecure in sometimes what the Bible has to say and just clearly lays out for us. Maybe I didn't have a good understanding of what submission is. I think for me, most often when I think about submission, I I look back to my college days where uh, the guys would gather in our room and we would rent like the UFC uh, fights, right? Where it's two guys. At that time, it was only guys. Now women have joined those things, which is another feat, you know, but uh, there's two guys in there that basically fight until somebody is knocked out or they submit. There's literally these holds that are called submission holds where someone will get you into this position and they say, either tap and say, I'm done fighting or I will break your arm, right? That's my vision of submission. Let me force you into this position 
so that you have no other choice. Or that's one way I think about submission. Or there's another way of just the absolute weak-minded or weak-bodied person who has no other option but to cower in a corner. Have you ever seen like a dog when, a, when an alpha comes into the room and they know it immediately? They just lay down on their back and it's like, here's my throat, take it, you know? <laughs> I, I think some ways when I think about submission, I think about one of those two things, but I don't think either of those are biblical. Tim Challies makes an excellent distinction on what submission is and what submission is not. And he makes this helpful distinction between submission and subjection. He says this, subjection describes actions taken by the one in authority, where submission describes action taken by the one under authority. When it comes to marriage, church, and our shared life with other believers, we are instructed to submit, not subject. Subjection is the act of a ruler to force obedience. He uses fear, force, intimidation to break the will of people, and eventually they will surrender to them. They will give up and wave the white flag. They've been conquered. They are now in subjection to the leader. Submission, though, is the act of someone who acknowledges legitimate authority and willingly arranges himself or herself accordingly. Submission is voluntary, never forced. It's the responding to the divine order of things first in the heart and then in the life. He goes on to say this, the church is not in subjection to Jesus Christ. We haven't been ruthlessly conquered by him. No, the church has been won by Jesus Christ. So we willingly submit to his rule, his guidance, his instruction. We acknowledge the right to govern. We acknowledge his right uh, to, of overwhelming love. We respond to his spirit. We arrange ourselves accordingly. A wife is then also not in subjection to her husband. She has not been sovereignly claimed by him. Rather, she has been pursued and wooed and won. Now God calls her to submit to her husband's leadership, to acknowledge that, that the ordering of the family that God has ordained as husbands should take the role of leadership and wives should submit to that leadership. Therefore, she acknowledges God's will and arranges herself accordingly, submitting herself and everything to her own husband. Church members, he goes on to say, are not in subjection to pastors. They have not been forced into this Christian commitment or, uh, or persuaded into membership of the church. Rather, they have willingly joined themselves to this body and are now eager to use their gifts and service to others, to do this to the utmost, to maintain the right ordering of the church, and to make the pastor's task easy rather than painful, they submit to the leadership of their church. The consistent instruction of the Bible is that one under authority must submit to those over them. Foreign to the Bible is the one with authority that must force subjection under them. It's not there. So many of our problems, though, he says, arise when sin impacts both sides of this dynamic. So I think this idea of submission is, is difficult for us if we don't have a proper idea of it. That it's not subjection, it's not forced, it's not coerced, it's not uh, any way manipulated, but it's actually biblical. And it's actually demonstrated by the most powerful man who ever walked the planet, 
there was ever a superhero that could actually leap bound mountains or buildings in a single bound, if there was one who did not have to submit, it would be Jesus. And yet he chooses to demonstrate this incredible uh, act of submission even to the Father. Look, in, uh, here's my point. Is submission is rooted in the gospel and demonstrated by Christ. Notice this in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That that, that doesn't mean that we agree on everything. He'll continue and, and make his point. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, the gospel. So Paul's making a case for unity. He's making a case for humility here. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility and mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. He had this position that he could have flaunted, and yet he still says, no, I'm going to take the low spot. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found as an appearance of man, he humbled himself or submitted himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Submission is, is rooted in the gospel, and it's actually demonstrated by Jesus. And so if ever at all someone comes to you and says, why why would you even think about submission? Why would you think of this term in in a way that you would want to pursue that? We would say as believers, because Jesus did. Because Jesus did. There's a moment on the cross and and the moment in in the garden where Jesus clarifies the situation with everybody. He says, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call a thousand angels down right now and end this with a word? He says, you're not taking me. I'm submitting myself to death. Jesus demonstrates this incredible thing that's rooted in the gospel. It's demonstrated by Christ. Second, biblical submission is a needed protection of the church. Biblical submission, and I use this term together, biblical submission. Biblical submission. I think that should clue us in that sometimes that, that submission is not biblical, but also biblical submission indicates for us that this uh, idea that we're pursuing comes straight from Scripture. So biblical submission is needed for the protection of the church. It's something that's, that's indicative of the Christian life, of life together. Notice what Ephesians 5 verse 21 says. This is a verse right before the, the passage of wives submit to your husbands. But he says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So each one of us should practice a life of submission to each other. We read this in, in Philippians that, that we consider others above us. We, we um, yield ourselves to them. We don't regard uh, ourselves uh, and our personal interests uh, as higher. It's interesting here, he uses this word uh, in submission, submit, uh, hupotasso. It's a word that's a little bit different than the Hebrews 13 passage that we'll use. We'll explain that in a second. But here, it's a military term that literally means to rank yourself under. 
It's as if we walk into a room and, and you see the stripes on someone's chest or something, and you bear the same stripes. You have the same awards, you have the same standing, and yet you walk in the room and say, what would you like me to do? How can I help? What do you need? You, you immediately rank yourself under. That's not subjection, that's submission. And the reason why it's so difficult, the reason why you're wrestling in your heart even now, as I have all week long, is because we are sinful and prideful and don't want anyone to push their heel into our life. And I would say, again, that's not biblical submission. It's not forced coercion. It's not subjection. So if submission to one another is part of the Christian life, Submission to leaders within the church should not be that much more of a step, if at all, in the life of the church. The writer of Hebrews speaks to this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So now before we get into, really get into submission, there's a couple of really foundational, important foundational elements that I think allow me to preach this sermon. First, there's not one word in scripture that applies to you that does not apply to me. Let me say that again. There, there's not one word in Scripture that applies to you that does not apply to me. There's no exception clauses be, that you gain by becoming a pastor. If anything, by becoming a pastor or an elder, you now step into higher responsibilities and, and higher uh, qualifications that are listed. In fact, uh, the Scripture says, like, you, know, you, should, you should be careful to teach because if you teach, you will enter yourself into a stricter judgment. It says, the second you stand here, you now enter into a different place of judgment. It's a different responsibility. So if there's not one thing that applies to you that does not apply to me, then, then this idea and this command, I would say this command, not an idea, not a suggestion, but to obey your leaders also applies to me. These are the things that make having the plurality of elders, multiple pastors here at Exchange, very comforting. So while I am one of them, I submit myself to six other pastors. While I'm one of the pastors here at Exchange, we have seven elders. I obey this verse by submitting my life and my like everything that I am, my family, to my pastors at Exchange. I hope that that changes the conversations. I hope that you understand that every sermon preached here is, is, applies just as much to me as anyone else in the room. 
There's some incredible guys that sit around the table at our office and that time for a few hours, but there's so much more. These seven guys love you and lead with humility and patience and kindness. And there's seven, not just one, who guide the direction of our church. There's seven guys who, who constantly submit to each other before we ask you to submit to what we feel like God is leading us to. We've submitted already to one another. In fact, I'll say this. In, in the past couple of years, there's been times we've said, uh, I've, I've told you how this works. Uh, we've never voted on anything. The elders have never, I'm not saying that we won't ever, but I'm saying so far we haven't. We haven't voted on anything. What that doesn't mean is that we haven't disagreed. We've strongly disagreed at times. But what happens is when there's a disagreement in the room, you see seven guys literally slam their foot on the brakes because when we're not united, we slow down and put it in park until we figure it out. And there are times where some of us submit to say like, you know what, if this was just me making this decision, this is not the decision that I would make. There's been times over the past few years, 10 years, that that has been the case for me. The elders in the room can verify this. They will tell you that that's true. What they won't tell you is which things that that was about. And nor will I. Because I've submitted myself to them. And that's what it means to submit ourselves to leader. Submission doesn't mean sitting down on the outside while you stand up on the inside. Submission means putting yourself in a posture that says, man, I've got people over authority in my life and they're speaking to me. I trust them. I trust that they've prayed for me. And so I'm actually going to submit myself and submit this decision to that. I would say second, submission is not blind allegiance. It doesn't mean that you just say sure to everything that we ever come up with. In fact, there's places in Scripture uh, that warns the church not to follow certain leaders. The, the leaders are leading them in a place that's anti-Christ and anti-Jesus in, in the way of Jesus. And, and the apostles would actually say, hey, turn from them. Run as fast as you can from them. In Acts uh, 17, the Bereans were actually commended for checking everything that Paul said against Scripture. I love that. In Acts chapter 17, there's this commendation where he says, you guys are doing incredibly well by checking everything off that we say through Scripture. There's a way uh, that we should look at Scripture and test all things. Submission isn't blind allegiance, and it's not the absence or prohibition of disagreement. I want to say that again because I want to be really, really clear. Submission is not the absence of or prohibition of disagreement. That's not what it is at all. In fact, I think there's times that you should disagree, but I always think that there's a way to disagree. There are times that we should disagree, and there's a way to disagree. We'll actually cover that next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the practicals, what to do when you do not agree with the leaders of your church. I'm really excited about that sermon because I think we can all grow from it. I'm going to share stories of really good stories and really bad stories. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. You wish that I would, right? That I've got a safety deposit box. I'll tell you, 
I'll tell you where it's at and how to access it when I die. The names have not been changed, right? I'm kidding about that too. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're going to talk about how to disagree. We're going to talk about, actually, we're going to talk about the things that I've never heard a sermon on, when to leave a church. We're going to talk about when your disagreement should be so strong that you say, you know what, I cannot stay here any longer, and I will not. We're going to talk about that. What does the Bible have to say about it? With that said, I want to read this passage again. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So John Piper helps us understand the first and possibly abrasive word here, obey. He employs this strange word, peace, though, uh, obey. It's, it's a very broad Greek term, uh, that actually means uh, it, it's hard to come up with uh, the definition obey, actually. Listen to the most clear definition. If you just took a word-for-word definition, this word pitho that Paul inserts here uses persuaded by, trust, and rely on. It's come to mean obey because that's when you do when you trust someone. So you might say it's a soft word for obey. It encourages a good relationship of trust, but it still calls people, listen to this, and what John Piper says, to be swayed by leaders. To be swayed by leaders. I know this can be hard and has baggage for sure. We've all at some level experienced leaders that couldn't or shouldn't be trusted. And sometimes when you come from an environment like that, it takes some time to learn how to trust again. But I'll say this, that should be the goal. The goal should not be a posture of, well, I'll just wait for you to disappoint me. The posture should be, man, I've got baggage that I'm bringing into this room, but I I want to know you well enough to trust you. I, I want to be able to be swayed by you. You can't accomplish biblical submission without it. Not only can you not be persuaded, it's imp- impossible to practice biblical submission. It'll only uh, be, cause you to have no other choice. There's an element here that's directly tied to your ability to trust those that God has placed in some type of leadership in your life. And so I get that past experiences make this difficult. I'll say this. Don't let blogs, podcasts, and stories of other pastors determine your ability to be swayed. There's a lot of stories out there. And I think sometimes the church has got caught up in all of these other like like famous stories and, and these blogs and, and podcasts and different things like that. And what we do is, is sometimes there's a po- couple of podcasts that were co- uh, popular. I'm not even going to name them uh, in the past year or two. And while they exposed some, some crazy things about particular churches and movements, I think they did massive damage to the church as a whole. Because it, it just built this spirit of uh disillusionment, discontentment. It built this spirit of 
this posture of, oh yeah, you're just like the rest. And I think while the intent was probably good, the enemy used it 10 times over. We should be careful what we allow ourselves. It'd be like this. Uh, it'd be like if you chose to listen often to podcasts about how bad marriage is, if you're married. Would that be a great idea? If you just chose to listen and you just like kept clicking on the podcast of talking about how terrible husbands are or how terrible wives are, that would not feed your ability to pursue your spouse. And in the same way, I think we should be very careful about the things that we're letting into our lives on that. Another thing that is, that is being swayed actually requires the desire for you to be able to be swayed. Let me say that again. There's a requirement of a desire to be swayed before you can actually be swayed. You have to begin with this posture that you don't know everything and that you always have something to learn. Again, we'll talk about this more next week, but this happens when you ask questions before you make accusations. This is the posture that comes in to say, I think I, I, think I might disagree, but before we begin this conversation about my disagreement, can you help me understand? Well, that changes the conversation. That is a person who demonstrates, hey, listen, if there's a way, I, I can be swayed here. Not manipulated, not coerced, but I'm entering a conversation as if I'm respecting you enough to say, you have probably thought this through. The group of elders who give their time up from their families and their lives have probably pray, prayed about this. So you can, can you help me understand a little bit more about it? That's an entirely different conversation. When you seek understanding before you seek to be understood, this is a person who demonstrates a posture that has the capacity for obedience. This happens when you have a biblical posture of humility. I think we all know someone or have had someone in our life that always just wants to argue. Do you know that person? If you are that person, you shouldn't be. They can't say, they can't not say something, right? Have you ever seen this person? You've, you've seen this person. You're in a room and it's like there's a conversation and it's like they're doing this thing and the conversation is like, do you have to pee or like do you just want to say something that bad? And it's the latter. Like they cannot contain themselves of wanting to interject into and correct everyone else in the circle. Have you seen that? They don't listen to you when you talk. They just wait for you to stop talking so they can say something. This isn't a swayable person. It's not a swayable person. You ever been out in the country, uh, maybe after dark, and like, it seems like a half mile away, there's just this insistent dog that keeps on barking. <laughs> Have you seen that? And you're like, 
how do they sleep? They, they put the dog so far from their house that they don't hear it or they've stopped hearing it, right? And you think to yourself, or if you ask the question, maybe if you know the owner, I mean, it's just this dog that keeps on barking, keeps on barking, keeps on barking. And you're like, what are they barking at? And he says, everything. Everything. You know, there's people that just bark about everything. Those are the people that cannot be swayed. They don't have a, a, a posture of humility that's allowing them to embrace this biblical submission. It's actually impossible for them because they've postured themselves in a way that says, I will not. There's another word here, submit. And it occurs actually only here in the New Testament. Now, though in, in um, the New Testament, we see this idea of submission. The word that Paul uses here in Hebrews chapter 13 is just this one. It's upiko. And it has a narrower, very narrow sense and, and function uh, that it means uh, to make room for or retiring your seat to give it to someone else. It means total yielding. It's as if you have the right of way and you pump the brakes, put it in park, and let somebody else go. It means this I should have a bent towards trusting leaders. Be bent that way. Don't be a distrustful people. But second, I should have a disposition to be supportive in my attitudes and actions towards the goal and the direction of the decision of the leaders or pastors here in exchange. It means that, that when we enter these, these moments where there's this opportunity for disagreement, I think that's, that's great. But when we enter those opportunities for disagreement, we, we come with a posture of humility, able to be swayed, questions before accusations. And then we say, man, you guys have probably prayed about this. Have you prayed about this? And then we say, man, I, I disagree, but I trust you. Did you know submission is only submission when you disagree? Sub submission isn't submission when you agree. Right? It, it, submission isn't only in effect when everything is going the way that you want it to go. Submission is actually only submission when, man, I would do it another way. I actually think this, but I'm going to yield my seat to you. Why? Because God has placed you in this position in this church. That's what biblical submission is. So there's a couple of things I want to define biblical submission. Biblical submission is the result of biblical humility. Biblical submission is the result of biblical humility. I think it's, um, you've heard it said, I'm sure, it's one of those unknown quotes, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's just thinking of yourself less. There's another instruction in an ambiguous conclusion or promise that's attached to this command. Again, I'll say it unapologetically, the command to obey and submit. And he says this, for they keep watch over your souls who, as those who will give an account. 
And he says this, let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Let them lead you with joy and not grief. This is possibly, I'll say this, I'm going to give you the inside, behind the curtain thing. Okay. When I say that, again, three people get super nervous in my life. Ed, Jana, and now Christy does too. This passage, that sentence, let them do this with with joy and not grief. It's actually a comfort to me that I'm not a terrible person. That scripture acknowledges that sometimes pastoring people is very difficult and not fun. Ed posed an incredible question last week that only the bold, humble, and people who want to improve ask. What's it like to be on the other side of you? He asked you to ask that question in the first person to maybe the people that know you the best. What's it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to be on the other side of me? I would say that only the bold, humble, and people who are dedicated to progressing in their faith would ever dream of asking that question. That's vulnerable. I think sometimes we have to acknowledge, Scripture does, that sometimes what's on the other side of you is grief. That's what Scripture says. Sometimes what's on the other side of you is joy, and sometimes what's on the other side of you is grief. That's what Scripture says. So there's been times over the 20 years that I, I don't know, maybe I should, <laughs> I'm going to say it. There's been times that's like, don't say it. Yeah. There's been times over the past 20 years that like, man, I, I was this close to going and like licking a slide to get the flu rather than go to this meeting with someone. It's like we give ourselves pep talks. You know, it's like, okay, Brian, you can do this. You can take whatever they have to say. You won't say two minutes of words in this three-hour meeting. It's just, Scripture says, be, be someone that's joyful. One of the toughest things that I have to do as a pastor, man, I hate this. One of the toughest things I have to do as a pastor is apologize to Ed for someone else. And I'm really sorry for the way that they treated you. You didn't deserve that. Really sorry. It's one of the most grievous things to my heart. It doesn't happen when someone's just needy. It happens when when a person enters that conversation with pride, zero humility, and when this person's history has told the story. There are people, though, I'll say, 
I don't know of any here at this time that I think it's their job. I think they, they took it as their job to, to be abrasive to the elders here. So that's, that's my role. And if ever the enemy puts that into your head, run far and fast. Run far and fast. Scripture is literally commanding us to be a joy. That means, again, for me, I have to be a joy to the guys that lead me. When we sit down in elder meetings, my job is to make that elder meeting more joyful, more fruitful. My job is to leave them more encouraged when they came in. That's what God has put me there for, is to be a joy in their life. Again, that does not mean I have to agree with everything. God will never put you, let me say this, God will never, ever, 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 never put you in a church for the purpose of being a thorn in the side of your pastor. He will never do that. He won't do it. He has always put you at a church to be a joy. It doesn't mean we agree. It just means that when we do, we're still joyful. Did you know that Jana and I, Jana, if you don't know me, is my wife. Maybe you could ascertain that from the conversations. You know that we disagree sometimes. Can you believe it? I mean, 99.9% of the time she's wrong, but she does. I'm kidding. Most often, most often I'm like, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. You know, we disagree, and we stay married. We stay married. There's never been a time, there's never been a time in our 21 almost years of marriage where we disagreed, and I thought, no, yeah, she's going to leave me now. It's hard for me not to think that way about the church, though. Now, in our culture, it says when we disagree, we just bounce. We just go. Again, I'll caveat this. There are times to go. There are times to leave. There are times to move on. I believe that's true. We'll talk about that next week. But I think we've gotten so tied up in the way that we disagree that it's like this camp or this camp, this camp or this camp. And it's like you versus me, this team or this team. And when it's like that, there's no joy in it. We can't learn from that disagreement. We can't grow from that disagreement. Biblical submission is a result of biblical humility. And the promise of this conclusion is this, it'll be unprofitable for you. Now, this is a little bit ambiguous, like the challenge that he gives to pastors. He says this, obey your pastors and submit to them as those who will give an account for your souls. I, I, I've said this before. I don't know what that means. I wish, like phone a friend, Jesus, can, man, there's a lot of laws in Leviticus. Can we take out three pages of those and replace them with, what are you talking about here? What does it mean that I'm going to give an account for your souls, right? He doesn't define it. And neither does he define it'll be unprofitable for you. 
it could mean a lot of different things, but I don't really want to find out. I believe it, and I know that it's a warning to be careful. And I think it's not good because there's little or no growth when, when I think maybe the unprofitable thing is that there's little or no growth when we are just anti-formidable. Um, when we've placed ourselves in a way that's just grievous to the pastors and elders and leaders of those in our life, and we say, man, I'm just going to continue to hit all the time in all the ways we lose all chance of growth in our life. So that could be the unprofitable. I mean, it's unprofitable for you. When we practice submission, when we practice surrender, we learn what it's like to give up of ourselves, to, to move in the right direction that God is calling us to. But I think this is true. You know, in Scripture, God says these words. He says he opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. And I can't think of any team that I'd rather not play than God. When God says, I, I oppose the proud, man, I, I want to say, I'm, I'm done. Take me out of the game. But I am not going to play that. So the proud posture is, whoa, 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 before, before anybody talks, I know best. I'm not swayable. I'm not teachable. I'm not humble. Like, that's proud. And that's the one who is not joy. No one forces pastors to pastor them out of grief by accident. Let me just say that. Let me say that again. No one forces a pastor to pastor them out of grief by accident. You're wondering this. I hope I haven't been a, a grief. If you're wondering that, you haven't been. If you're wondering that, you haven't been. Let me say that again. If you're wondering that, you have not been. It doesn't happen by accident. It, it happens with, in, with intentionality. So this is the, the commitment. We're going to say it again. I commit to submitting to the care, correction, and protection of leadership. So we're going to look at the care, correction, and protection super quick. I commit to submitting to the care of pastors. Here's where this is founded. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Now he's talking to the pastors. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker, also of the glory to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Care for the flock. Feed the flock among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sword gain, but with eagerness, and not as lording it over some to subject them to those of your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. He says, feed your flock. We talked about this in the expectations of a pastor, that our job as elders here at Exchange is to, to direct the ministries of exchange. That's why we're not going to talk about like, all the ways that, that America needs something. We're going to talk about the ways that exchange needs something. Right? We're not preaching to other churches. We're preaching to exchange. 
That's also uh, the care that we give is the direction that we feel the Lord is moving us and shaping us and, and pushing us towards. That means some of the ministries of this exchange, some of the direction and vision behind exchange, that means the decisions we make for the body of exchange. That's the care that we are implementing towards exchange. He says this, shepherd the flock among you. That's the care that we give to exchange. Second, I commit to submitting to the correction of the pastors. This is tough but it's scriptural. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says this, but we request of you, brethren, that when you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that esteem you very highly in love because of their work. Now, I, I want to make this caveat too. This does not mean we tell you like what, what job to get, what, what house to buy, what color car. That, like that's, that's absurd, right? I, I hope that's, apparent. The charge over is what happens within exchange body and what happens according to scripture, right? The only authority we have is what scripture speaks. So he's saying this, he says, and I esteem you very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. Here's what the NIV renders. Now we ask you brothers and sisters to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you, and who admonish you. About nine different times the New Testament uses this word admonish, and it's used in the, in the context of elders or pastors to their flock. Correct. It's just this gentle, it should be, just this gentle um, moving of like, hey, we're moving a little bit too far that way. Moving just a little bit too far that way. Moving just a little. It's just this little correction. In Galatians, Paul speaks to the church and he poses a, a, a tough question. He says, what, what happened to you? Well, when I came to you and I was in need, I, I came to you because I was sick. And when I was sick and preached the word to you, you would have given your life for me. And now you've made me your enemy and want to put me to death. Why? because I've told you the truth. He says, why would you trust me when I didn't have to correct you, but when I correct you, all of a sudden you think I'm the enemy and for your harm. This is a role of pastors. This is the role of elders and shepherds is that gentle correction. And third, I commit to submitting to the protection of pastors. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says this, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He has made you shepherds. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That protection comes maybe when we say, you know what, hey, uh, there's this, very famous book out right now by this author. Here's the, here's the dangers in that. It might come when, when we come and say, hey, listen, I need to protect you from this relationship. This person is, is attempting to, to stir up strife. 
It could be protection in the way of uh, how the direction of exchange is moving. And we say, you know, the enemy's coming for us in this way. And this is the walls that we're building up to protect exchange. These are the sermons that we're going to preach to protect us against 2024. This is the way that we're going to protect ourselves about being just driven by the current of the culture. We're going to protect ourselves and the flock that Christ has put us in charge of. You know, the the thing about biblical submission is I think it makes community in the church either very, very difficult or very, very joyful. And like Tim Challies said, is that the problem is that, like Ed said last week, accountability is is only needed by imperfect people, and it's only given by imperfect people. The same goes with biblical submission. It's, It's that only imperfect people are required to submit, and only imperfect people lead the church. So we're going to get it wrong. There's multiple times where we're going to have to say, man, I'm sorry. I didn't do that right. And if that's part of the conversation, then we're going to do great together. But I think sometimes we try to bypass this, and our culture certainly teaches us to just live our lives in such an individualistic way where we just literally, like as soon as we disagree, we just go somewhere else that we agree with. And we forfeit any opportunity for growth. We do things the wrong way. I don't know if you've seen this, but it was a kind of a trend here in the last uh, maybe year where I think mo- more people caught on. But there was these videos going around where like a girlfriend or a wife or a daughter uh, would take their dad, husband's, boyfriend's truck or something like that and say, hey, I wanted to do something nice for you today and I filled you up with gas. He's like, uh, gas or diesel? She's like, gas. I mean, I, I put, put gas in there. I, I, I mean, I, I did do the medium grade, right? She's like, you were totally empty. Filled you up. Right? And you just, like this, just this shock of, and how far did you drive, you know? I mean, I, I drove around, run my errands, and it was running weird, you know? I mean, I think sometimes, you know, obviously it was an accident. They called it on camera, all the things. I think just sometimes we try to do community life and church life with the fuel and in the way that we just think is best. Nobody's ever taught us. Nobody's ever said, hey, when you put gas in this car, when you put fuel in this car, it comes from the green handle only. It's more expensive. It doesn't make sense, but that's the fuel that runs this car. I think in some ways, to be honest, this is a very difficult sermon to preach, and I could not preach it unless I was submitting myself under the care of six other elders. It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be right. But I, I, I struggled with this this week because I feel like I've never heard a sermon like this before. I've never heard this before. Nobody's ever taught me before, man, you put the green handle in here. I think Scripture lays a really, really 
good foundation for us. What does it look like to live in community together? Let's put the right fuel in the community. And I think when we do that, God honors it, and he will bless us. A couple ways of response today. Jesse comes back. A couple ways of response. Would you consider, I love this part because I'm asking you to do something for the other six and, and not me. So the other six elders are Ed Martin, um, Doug Penny, Todd Cavanaugh, Ray Jezik, Rick McCoy, and Eric Martindale. Would you consider writing one of them a note this week and just letting them know that you appreciate them? Chances are they've prayed for you the past week, past couple weeks. Would you just consider writing a note to one of them and say, hey, thanks. Jana will thank me with a kiss or something like that. You don't have to get me. Right, Jan? She's got me. Would you just consider doing that? Second, maybe more difficult. Would you kind of look back over the past maybe six months, year, whatever it is, however far the Lord will let you, and, and would you just ask the question to the Spirit? Would you say, Lord, have I honored my pastors? Is there, is there a way that I need to, to enter back into this joyful relationship? Have I, have I honored them? I think when we do things like that, the Spirit will reward us so much in community. And then have that conversation with them. Call for a mulligan and a redo and say, hey, can we do that conversation over? I'd like to ask three questions before I make my statement. I'm just telling you, the unity that Christ will bring through that, nothing can tear apart. So I'm going to ask you, maybe today as we reflect and respond and then eat together, share a meal together, maybe the Spirit lays something on your heart. Maybe you grab one of these guys later after church or schedule a meeting. They would totally be up for that. Let's do this together. Not in subjection, but in submission, all of us. Father, would you give us what we need to do that? It's so difficult without your spirit, impossible without your spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would make us humble. Lord, I pray that you would make us moldable and shapeable and swayable. Lord, that we would often look for the others in the room and in the conversation and put them above ourselves, all of us. And Lord, we ask that we would do it through your power and with your example, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you even begin to reform biblical unity right now in the way that we submit and care for one another. Jesus, give us the strength as we go through difficult days where the culture desperately wants to tear us apart. And teach us what it's like to be of one mind with one focus.
Jesus, thank you for being our example. Thank you for being our perfect, perfect example.